You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 133, Cast Iron Myths with Kyle Sight. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick tries to get to the bottom of a few cast iron myths that have been circulating around the internet. Smooth versus rough finish, expensive versus cheap, and folks still thinking that soap is okay. Kyle puts these myths to bed along with a ton of other info about your favorite cookware. So preheat that skillet and let the facts cook on this episode of Huntivore. Well, hey, folks, beautiful evening here in Michigan. I tell you what, I was wearing a sweatshirt today. Believe it or not, the sweatshirts are coming out. Fall is around the corner. Uh, if you, again, have not been shooting your bow, then uh, then shame on you. Um, I am in that camp, so it's a, it's a full camp. We're all in here not shooting together. My boys have taken over as far as practice and games being both in soccer and football. So, yeah, time crunches towards that October 1st date where we want to get in the stand. Um, I've looked at my bow, and I do know that it's shooting true. Uh, we've gone through some paper here a couple weeks ago, uh, but now it's time to get out there and go a little bit longer range. Um, as far as trail cameras are going, they are still in the garage. I didn't get them out again this year. We're just going to be happy with whatever walks out in front of me. Uh, the goal is for doe out early, and then we can wait for the eight point coming later in the year. So anyway, that's our, our quick intro into that we are real close to the opener here for archery for deer here in Michigan, and I know it's going to be opening up a lot of the places here out east. But uh, hey, we're going to take a shift gears. Rather than get into the woods, we're going to get to the kitchen. We're going to get to the open flame. We're going to get a chance to really dive into some cast iron talk. There has been more and more of this cast iron talk popping up uh, on social medias and through YouTube and just different areas, not just how to season or what to season with, but man, we're getting into some nitty gritty stuff. And then just to see vintage, to see really old pieces pop up. And Folks, I, I tracked down 
Kyle Sight. He is Cast Iron Kyle on Instagram. Uh, we were just talking a little bit here, and I learned that Bone Appetit magazine has even called him like what, what was it, Kyle? It was the something about vintage, uh, vintage cast iron. Yeah, the Instagram king of uh, vintage cast iron. <laughs> I tell what a title. Kyle was also yep. sheepishly saying, like, he feels like he's got a little imposter syndrome. But, hey, man, when the rubber meets the road, it comes to knowing about old metal. You seem to got it. You seem to get it. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, it's definitely one of those weird niche things that you kind of feel like a potted plant at the party. And then, uh, you know, things to talk about. But when people realize what you can do with those pans, then you uh, get invited to a lot more parties and they expect you to bring stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I I can imagine that. Um, how did your love for cast iron start? Like, just as I was going through your Instagram and just for the stuff that I've seen, like, going around to, like, flea markets, going around to these different shows, uh, trade shows, you know, just even thrift shops. Like, are you just picking for cast iron? And is it specific skillets or is it anything cast that is that, that's on your radar? Well, it, I mean, it all got started, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, there's a longer form version of this story, but basically, uh, my grandmom was an antiques dealer and, you know, used to take me to auctions and all this stuff. And I really enjoyed using the old things, the way that they were made to be used. And I grew up, uh, in a farm family where, you know, we didn't buy new things. We used what we had. So cast iron just made sense. And, uh, on my, on the other side of the family, my grandfather, um, I used to cook for him. I lived with him for the last five years of his life, uh, through Alzheimer's dementia and Parkinson's and all that. So I kind of keep the memory of both my grandparents alive by doing this, but curating it. Um, I have a really good reputation in the cast iron world for paying good prices for things. So I always have people with, you know, with an eye out for me all over the country. I'm really lucky to have a, a good pool of pickers. And uh, it all comes down to honesty. If you pay honest prices and you don't beat people up, they're pretty uh, willing to hold on to stuff for you and let you know when they have it. So um, I try to keep an account on Instagram that's very open and, and somewhat personal. You know, there's a lot of other cast iron accounts where it's just like, you know, every post is just a piece of cast iron and then words, cast iron and words. And there's nothing about the person. They're not showing you how to cook. They're not really showing you anything about the skillet other than what it looks like and you know what it does um so i like to teach people how to cook and i think that that gives people a personal nature of who i am and thus making them want to work with me so curating them is pretty easy if if you're uh you know you're kind and honest i love it i love it yeah Keeping a little bit of meat on the bone when it comes to, you know, passing the money down goes a long way. Yes. And then, Absolutely. like you said, being open with information, that's that's huge. I think that really shows the passion that you have, Kyle, as opposed to, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike it rich uh, with this stuff. But no, like I'm going to you're going to share your passion about it. And I think that just draws people. Uh, I think it's a fresh take on things. So that's an awesome way to be going after that yeah it's you see you'll see a lot of guys um that that are honest as well like the community's not you know crooks or anything like that but you'll see 
dudes that are out picking and then you'll look at their Etsy page and they have skillets there for like, you know, three or four grand. Like I, I couldn't go to a garage sale and buy a skillet that I know is worth a couple grand for 10 bucks. You know, I'm, I've, it's, it's been a, uh, a rare occasion, but I've come across pieces that were in the, you know, couple hundred dollar range. And the person said, Oh, you know, give me a couple bucks. I said, nah, you know, I said, I could probably get, you know, three or 400 bucks for this thing. If it's restored and cleans up right, here's a hundred dollars. You know what I mean? So, um, being, like I said, being honest is, um, is really crucial. And, um, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about other sellers, but they're just, they, they all kind of just fall in line, um, with, uh, they, they all kind of blend in except for a few of them. So I try to stand out. Awesome. And that's a great segue into my, my first question. Um, I see, I see Griswold. I see Erie. I, I understand that these are names that that are uh, that are sought after. Um, that these are names that you know hold a lot of history to them. Um, building my own collection, and I'm I'm a hunter and a cook first, uh, and I would say like a, a lover of old things. You know, third or fourth in the line. I got enough hobbies that you know, keep me busy and keep me out of, <laughs> keep me out of getting in trouble. Um, yeah. but at the same time, I look at some of this stuff and it's like, well, isn't that, isn't it all the same when it comes to, it's just literally, uh, iron that's been casted into a mold. When, when we're looking at Griswold and Erie and comparing that to, you know, a modern company right now, like Lodge, that those are the pieces that I have. And I got them, uh, you know, I didn't get them for these couple hundred dollars. I, I got them, you know, straight off the shelf, out of the cardboard, and I had to, you know, season them, or they came with a seasoning on them. What is making the Griswold and the Erie and these older pieces so valuable? Is it the fact that these are now one-of-a-kind pieces that are no longer being made, or is there something different about the process of casting those pieces entirely? Well, I mean, I work in, in the metal industry. I'm a, a manual machinist, uh, certified welder. Uh, I've been doing that for about 15 years of my life. So it's given me a really good background in metal composition and metallurgy as a whole. Um, the modern stuff is casted for quantity and the old stuff was casted for quality. It's the same reason why if you had you know, if you had infinite funds and you had the opportunity to have a 69 Camaro versus a 96 Camaro, you don't, you choose the 69 every time. Why? Because they were made better back then. There's less of them and it's, they're just cooler. They work better. They're better for your, you know, for what you need. Um, metal back then, uh, you know, iron ore back then was like straight from the mountain. Like iron was not uh, like a recycled thing. Um, I've mentioned many times before that when you're using metal, uh, when you're using iron, it could be, you know, recycled. It could, you could have iron from an unknown source that was melted down and made into a skillet. And I, I just think that the quality of the iron nowadays uh, is just really for quantity. There are a few brands that are doing it right. Um, uh, that I, that I think are, are doing it the way that they used to. Um, but a lot of a lot of it comes down to being able to get your investment out of them. Like if you buy a brand new, like you said, Lodge, um, you'll never get 
what you paid for it out of it. But I could buy a Griswold eight tomorrow for, you know, a hundred dollars, use it for 10 years and then sell it for, you know, a hundred or more that holds their value because of their rarity and quality and craftsmanship. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is, 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 is Griswold and Erie, are those, those companies dissolved at this point or are they still making, uh, making pieces or is those, those are long companies that are long gone well erie the the griswold manufacturing corporation they they had erie um and erie uh, erie went out or erie changed to griswold's erie for about a year and then it turned into griswold um in around the 1906 07 range i i I don't have it written down, but from the top of my head, it was, you know, the early 1900s when it went from Erie to um, Griswold. And you'll see if you find a skillet that's Erie, um, you know, chances are it's from the 1890s and you'll see that it's it feels light, um, but it's not a lack of quality because it's it's light. It's just made so well. You can you, it's, it's like a work of art. If, you know, like I come from a blue collar background and I, if I hold something that somebody made, I could tell if there's, you know, a lack of quality and there's nothing lacking in this old stuff. These guys did everything right. Intense, intense. Cause now they're using virgin iron. Essentially we're using ore straight out of the ground, pure stuff here from the U S and yep. smelting that down into those processes. Um, Modern yeah, I mean, stuff but, now that you know, like you said, it's it's getting recycled. In that casting right. process, are they are they? I mean, at, at some some people, like you said, like are are doing it right on the. I have no idea on the manufacturing side of it, but at that point, right. they're probably looking at what like what is the composition of that cast iron. Well, yeah, that, that nor do I know the composition truly. I mean, I'm not I'm not here to say that you know all new cast iron is made from recycled material. But who's running a steel mill out? You know, getting raw ore anymore? You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's it, it, if you look at where the main manufacturers of cast iron were, it was all Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. Like all the top brands were from out that way. Um, like every brand of the late 1800s, short from one or two down south everything came from that region of the world, which is where, you know, the steel empires all started out, you know, Pittsburgh area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with these pieces, they've been distributed all over the place and yeah. families like you, you were mentioning earlier, they're holding on to these pieces. It's, you know, it's probably been handed down from grandkid to grandkid or, you know, grandfather to, to grandson or even granddaughter. And these pieces are just going along. And as as these shows pop up, as far as like uh, three, either um, trade shows or even thrift stores, and like you said, you had a whole community of pickers that are finding these things. Um, what kind of condition are you finding? Some of these that are like, shoot, you could go throw it right on your stove right now and heat it up and and be ready to go. And then at the same time, are you finding some where you're having to like uncover what this thing oh, is? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I just posted a reel today about a restoration I did for a client. He gave me a piece to restore for him. It was his great grandmother's and he wanted me to tell him what make it was. And I told him, I said, I can't even tell this thing is so sooted up and 
corroded. We had no idea what the manufacturer was. And after, you know, a session or two in an electrolysis tank, we found out that it was a, a hammered piece. It had an eight in the handle. Like you couldn't see any of that. And, um, I like, I like when you get a skillet that's all crudded and corroded up and, you know, the challenge is bringing it back to life, but you find them in all condition. I find them, I call it turnkey if I find a good one. Cause all I got to do is oil it up. I always sanitize everything. Cause I'm not about to buy a mystery piece. I have no idea what was on it and then just send it <laughs> off to somebody. So I, I, I like to sanitize stuff. I'll, I'll sanitize it through means of heat. Um, I'm a team, no soap guy, and I can explain the reason why for that, if you'd like to hear it, but, um, I'm, I'm not about sending a piece out without doing at least some sort of work, you know, cause I don't, I feel like, Hey, that's not really the right way to do stuff. You know, you gotta be consistent about your process and, uh, B it doesn't happen frequent enough for me to <laughs> figure that out. So usually it is having some sort of restoration needed. I'm glad to be talking to another no soap guy. At the oh same time, God. I joined it, No Soap because I was told No Soap. I have no it, idea why, <laughs> other than the I, seasoning, but that's my only reason. Dive into yeah. that. Why Why No Soap? Well, see, the guys that are Team Soap nowadays are the guys that are doing interrupted content, meaning like they are the ones that figure out that they can get a clientele based on having the um, conflicting opinion, so to speak, kind of like how Uber disrupted the cab world. They knew that they could come in and make a splash. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I get accused a lot. People tell me I don't understand polymerization. Um, it's not really understanding polymerization because we all know that oil bonds to cast iron through heat polymerizes the oil to the cast iron. Soap's not going to ruin that polymerization, correct? Correct. So why do you need it? Other than I've washed everything with soap since day one. Right. But if you're out in the wild and you don't have soap and you all you have is fire and water, what do you do to the water to sanitize it? You boil it, right? Right. So if you have a skillet that's well seasoned, A, food shouldn't stick to it to begin with. But if food does stick to it, all you need to do is, you know, hit it with a little steel wool or something to loosen up if any little parts of something here stick here and there rinse it out and heat it back up and then you're done it takes five to seven gallons of water to rinse and clean the soap off of a skillet each time you use it so let's let's do some math real quick you ready for these numbers i'm ready so say you, you five to seven we'll just call it six gallons right so say you use your skillet every other day we'll call that 180 days a year that's a thousand gallons of water for one skillet that you use every other day if you use soap. Oh, now that's smokes. now that's just your house. I'd like to say I've done you know research in my neighborhood. There's at least three houses on every street that uses some form of cast iron. So on a really low end, you're talking a few thousand gallons, you know, per neighborhood at least. And this you know, is just on one piece of uh, yeah. this is just on one skillet that they have. Dude, you're talking swimming pools of unnecessary water. And my whole thing is, and no, this is going to piss some people off, but I'm cool with that. If you need soap on your cast iron, you're not seasoning it well enough. <laughs> You've got to do better, man. And if you want to make content around using soap on cast iron, that's fine. 
But I think a lot of the modern and I'm, I'm not afraid to say this, but I think a lot of the modern cast iron manufacturers say that soap is OK because they know that it'll sell more skillets if they tell people they can use soap. There's so many people that are clouded by the idea that if you don't if you can't use soap, it's not clean. So they're not going to buy your product. Well, how do we get them to buy our product? Well, we tell them that they can use soap. <laughs> So, you know what I mean? It's not a, and it's not a, it's not a lack of knowledge of science. You know, it's, it's a, it's just a really, I'm, I'm not about wasting time, money, water. You know, I don't need to buy more soap to wash my skillets. I don't need to pay more water on my water bill. I don't need to send thousands of gallons down the drain. It's just a total necessary step that, you know, uh, unnecessary step that doesn't need to take place. You know what I mean? I love it. I love I it. Have, for, to, to put a cap on that conversation, I've been doing cast iron for about 10 years now. I've sold in the thousands of skillets. I, I only show about, you know, maybe 10% of what I actually do on my page. A lot of it is repeat customers. A lot of it is uh, curating for restaurants and chefs, you know, from your average home chef to guys you see on TV. I have not had anyone in all my years of business ever complain about the quality of a skillet with food sticking to it ever. Yeah. Well, that's, and, that's cause you're like, what you're just saying, like you've got people who understand why, why they're using cast. They have an understanding of, of food in general. Um, you know, it's, it's the people that are having problem with the food sticking on there is they're not getting that thing hot enough or right. letting the food have a chance to cook on it. Right. Or they're using the wrong kind of oils. You want to use an oil that has a high smoke point so you can get that pan heated up and allow those pores to open in the cast iron and contract with that oil in them to bond that oil to your pan. So you want to use something like, you know, like an avocado oil or something like that. Avocado oil is the smoke temp is, I would say, somewhere around 500, maybe 480, something like that. Um, I'm a big fan of animal fats. Uh, I use lard, tallow, ghee. I use bison fat. I use goat fat. I've used every kind of animal fat you could ever think of. I have a bucket, a five-gallon bucket of A5 Wagyu fat that is not ever going to run out and seasons all of my stuff. <laughs> that was going to be my next thing, too, is like, you know, yeah, we want high smoke point, but at the same time, like, animal fat works out really well. Um, I... Is as simple as it is too. Like I've been using uh, just stuff off bacon. I you know when we cook bacon, and I've actually been doing that in the oven. Um, my boys seem to like it. It crispens up a little bit better for me. But I take yeah. all that fat, and I was just sitting in that uh, that tray, and I pour it right into a little mason jar that I have sitting there. Now when it's full, you know, yeah, at that point it's done. I'm not going to keep overfilling it. But shoot, right. just a dab after I've gotten that thing cleaned up. After I've gotten all the food residue out of there, I bring it back up to temp, and it's literally just dab of a cloth, wipe it around on the inside, and now it's ready to go for the next time. Oh, yeah, and the, the thing is, if you're going to filter that bacon, if anybody's listening and wants to try that, I would recommend putting a piece of cheesecloth over top of your jar before you pour it in, because all the little food bits and crispy bits of stuff, that stuff can go rancid. So if you can get that oil as pure as you can by filtering out any type of impurity besides pure oil, that can last you forever. There's a shelf life of, you know, infinite use if you take care of it right and you store it right and, uh, you know doing it that way that's good 
my little bits are all condensed right to the bottom. Uh, they're all encased in the fat, <laughs> so I should yeah. probably heat it back up. I'll heat the yeah. whole jar up, and then we'll, we'll filter that out. But I've just let them like, well, they ain't going anywhere. They're staying down there, and it's all white on the on the tip top of that. Yeah. A5 Wagyu. How do you come across A5 Wagyu uh, tallow? Uh, so there's a company out in Colorado. They're called Fatworks. And their whole company mission is using animal fats in your daily life. There's so much science. Um, there, there's so much science out there teaching you how you can benefit from animal fats. You can get energy from animal fats. There's no refining process. There is no, you know, homogenization. There's no soy in it. Like there's so, it's such a natural thing. You're literally just using a piece of an animal um, to cook with. And these guys have every kind of animal fat. And to correct something I said before, the animal fats I use, that's for my pans. When I do a pan for a customer, I either use uh, Crisco or I use an avocado oil. And that's simply because I'm not here to ask every single person their eating preference. So if someone's a vegan, I don't want to set them up with a skillet that's smothered in, 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 in lard. So when I restore a pan or before I send it out, everything's done with a... Uh, with a with a um, oil that won't you know mess with anybody's uh, passion or, or their their uh, lifestyle of, of vegan eating. Dry aged steaks used to be a steakhouse only indulgence. An old world charcuterie was pricey due to being imported or created at a small batch specific scale. Thanks to Umai Dry, their synthetic dry aging bags and casings allow you to create these meat crafting treats in your own kitchen. Working in tandem with your fridge, the Umai Dry Bag material allows moisture and air to pass through, making it possible to dry age large cuts of steaks or roasts. Paired with their curing and seasoning kits, along with safe and easy to follow instructions, salamis and dry sausage are well within your grasp. Use the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter to receive 10% off your order. Umai Dry, helping us elevate our wild game from the home kitchen. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your queue. Yeah, no, that's good too because just out of habit, I have a can of Crisco in the camper. And right. that that's what I've hit all my stuff when, when it comes with me on the camper. That's usually because I, 
again, it's the shelf life. I like the tin. It's the convenience. I can throw it. Um, doesn't need to be refrigerated. I just throw it in the camper and it just lives, lives its life in there. So no, that's a shoot. That's another good thing too, that, uh, you mentioned that, cause that's exactly how I've been doing them on the road. At least when I, when I take the few pieces, um, I did have, uh, a Dutch oven. Um, I, it, it's one of those ones that has the legs on it and I went to go put it, uh, on the fire. I put, I put a roast in there. I had a bunch of, I had a beer in there with a little bit of water and I seasoned it all up and we went on a hike. Well, that, uh, that hike ended up taking way longer than what we expected. Um, it got a little rocky and then we also had my three boys with me, which are really young, youngest is five. And so what, what ended up going to be like a three hour trip or ended up being like a six hour trip by the time we got back. And I I got back and that thing had just been sitting on the fire. I took the lid off and the roast was completely incinerated. I'll, I'll have to, I, I have to, I've mustered up the courage to talk about it now. <laughs> I like to know that I'm somebody I've, I think I talked about it on another podcast as well, but I think, okay, maybe I got to share it on the show notes, at least show the picture. But I mean, I turned that roast into a complete piece of charcoal. I mean, the <laughs> bone you, you, I could, I broke it with my hands and it was oh, merely no. because, because we got back so late and it just spent so much time there. But the, the seasoning that was on that, uh, that piece was completely, or at least in my, in my opinion is completely gone. I had cooked oh, it yeah. completely oh, yeah. out. And then, so yeah, on the road, here I am up in the UP of Michigan and now I've begun the process of it. I actually moved it over to uh, my propane cooker at that point. And there I just I, I was just putting layer after layer trying to build back that uh, that season. When it comes to cast iron, and I do something like like that move right there, where I I completely ruin it. Is is scorching it uh, uh, one way to get rid of the seasoning that you feel you can start over, or well, is there a far more effective, better way than doing that? Well, the way they've always done it, since ovens have had the feature of self clean, um, the way they did it back in the day, the way that they've always done it, and the way that does not need to be changed, in my opinion, is you can always put your pan on self clean mode or the put the oven on self-clean mode and put your pan in there upside down um it's it works i've done it a thousand times maybe and i've had zero breaks um i had an old lodge pan that was a commemorative piece for the boy scouts of america and had like the uh, uh i guess it's a corn flower emblem with the eagle on it and all that and I, it was all crusted and baked up bad and i put that sucker in there on uh self-clean and that stuff just flaked off. Um, a lot of the base seasonings that these new skillets use is just a really low budget, um, you know, bottom of the, like not a really quality quote unquote uh, pre-seasoning. And I get eh, probably every day, if not every other day, a message of why is my new skillet flaking? <laughs> so I always just tell people, put it in your oven on self-clean mode. And I get, it, it's like, it's like clockwork. Like if you followed me around for two or three days, you, I would, I would guarantee, I would bet my soul that you would see this message. Why is my skillet flaking? And then I respond, here's what you do. And then a day later I get a, a, a DM picture of the same skillet oiled up and cooking for their family. It, it's, 
it, it, it happens probably a hundred times a year. <laughs> <laughs> that is the one that probably one of the number one questions that, that does come back to you. Um, yes. How often do you restart uh, a skillet or have you gotten to the point now where you're, if you don't have to restart it, like it's better to just keep that seasoning going or are there yeah. points where it's like, okay, let's start from scratch. Let's get all of this extra burnt off let's get this flaked off and then start fresh is there is there a timing that that could that could happen um without sounding you know overconfident or quote-unquote cocky about it uh none of the skillets i've used in the past decade have needed any kind of uh really um redoing so to speak um and also (laughs) a fun fact uh i only have about 10 or 12 skillets in my personal collection and they're nothing you know crazy rare or unordinary because any piece it's it's my understanding and my philosophy that if i find a skillet i put a lot of time into it and i could sell it for you know a couple hundred bucks or you know even up to you know almost four figure figure range um i should just sell it because i have the potential to crack it or break it at my house i have my good set of pans and i'm keeping true to the philosophy that i don't need to over accumulate something i already have so the 10 pans that i do have 10 12 pans i do have in my collection are very well seasoned very well taken care of they can all pass the egg test and you know i like i have a griswold 6 that looks like the surface of the moon it's so pitted but all those little pits our little seasoning traps, I call them. And that's my filet mignon pan. I use that for that method. I have a breakfast pan. I have a pizza pan. Um, and they are, I'm not, I'm not saying that what I, myself and what I'm doing is perfect, but I have not ever needed to take a pan and, and completely redo it. If it's something I've owned since restored. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. As you know, and as someone who lives and breathes that, that's, that's something that you know you understand, and so just constantly just re re upping on that seasoning after after you've used it, you've been able to keep that and not had to to redo on some of those. I know some right. folks like, and, and I've come across it. You know, I'm I'm no guru with it, and I'm you know I'm sure I got one right now that it's taken some abuse, it's taken some neglect, and as much as I want to try to stay up on it, I got I got my little. Uh, I think it's a 10 inch. My 10 inch I use shoot probably 2 3 times weekly on on dishes that I'm making and sometimes it's it could be a multiple times a day, you know, as an educator not you know working during the summer, or at least not in the office during the summertime, you know, I'm baking and cooking stuff every day, so using oh, yeah. that pan got used it. It was my my bigger one that, you know, it it kind of got left in there or excuse I I put them in my my lower oven when we're not using it and it kind of just gets gets left there and i did see a little fleck of of rust on it and i took care of that at that point but it was like man this is it's starting to look a little sad so maybe going through that process throwing it in the oven through the cleaning cycle and just getting it back to square one starting over on what i've got there probably will bring life to any piece that somebody has that's that has a little bit of neglect to it you know, you haven't had a chance to get after it, you know, starting fresh isn't a bad deal. No, never. No, it's never, never a bad deal. And if you do it right, I mean, it's like, you know, it could be part of your maintenance routine, but I feel like the more you use the skeletons, the less you really have to worry about them. 
So if you keep consistent with how you do things and you use your skillet quite frequently, it'll, it'll get better with time. The more, the main phrase is just keep cooking, you know? Yes. Yes. You mentioned the egg test. Lay that out for the, the layman that does not know what the egg test is. So if you have a well, uh, finely tuned cast iron skillet that sees a lot of use and is well seasoned and ready to go, you should be able to take it out of the oven or off the rack, put it on the stove, heat it up, crack an egg in it, and the egg should move around. Gotcha. It should slide around early on yep. in that. Wow. Very early on. Yes. Is that also because it is a smooth surfaced cast iron or can a rough surfaced also pass this egg test? Oh, a rough surface can too, because like I said, like the, the one that I have, that's really pitted. Um, it just, it just holds little, it, they're like little oil traps, they're little seasoning traps. It should be fine. As long as the majority of the pan is nice, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll be able to move around. Good, good. And I, I lead up with that because I, I feel like, and I've, I've just kind of seen it pop up and surface around about some of these companies that are trying to sell cast iron. They're trying to sell what they are claiming to be higher grade. And I'm, you know, very possibly that they are, but then they're talking about how they have this smooth mirror finish on, on their skillet bottoms. And I'm seeing now videos of guys taking a, either a sanding wheel or they're putting something on an angle iron or their, their angle grinder. And they're just tearing apart the bottom, you know, getting to this thing to be as smooth as possible. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this is screams bullshit to me. It like it doesn't me. look right. It doesn't feel right. But I see more and more of this popping up. Kyle, what's so, going on with this? Why are people wanting us to make smooth bottom pants? Because they're dumb. Um, <laughs> dude, it's so, but the, I only say that because they argue with you. People are so quick to argue. So like I said, I work in the metal industry, right? I build tanks. We build, you know, heat exchangers where I work. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the customer wants the inside of the tank polished or, or sanded down to the point where it's smooth. And why do they want that? So that uh, microscopically nothing deposits into the metal. So what you're doing when you're sanding and grinding and polishing down the surface of your cast iron, you're not allowing any material to deposit in the metal. The skillet will get smooth from use and proper seasoning. You're forcing it. It's kind of like how people take a guitar and beat it up quickly to make it look like it's seen a lot of road use. And you can always tell from a mile away that that it's not the case. Um, it's the same thing with skillets. If, if, if you the average the average angle grinder grinds at 11,000 to 16,000 RPMs. Now, if you take a sanding disc and you put that sanding disc on that grinder and you're, you see people grinding the surface of their cast iron or sanding the surface of their cast iron, that's concentrating such a high level of heat in a concentrated area. You're literally smoothing over all of those pores that could be potential places for oil to deposit and polymerize, and you're blocking it. It's the same reason you, if you were to look inside a tank at a brewery, it's polished. The, the tank inside you know, a place that makes tomato sauce is is finely polished because tomatoes are acidic and they don't want any of that citric acid to deposit into the pores of the tank. So all you're doing is blocking any potential positivity to enter your skillet if you polish it up. Gotcha. 
It's a good well, question. That's yeah. A great, great question. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad I asked it because, yeah, I'm watching it and I'm like, this just doesn't seem right. It just, it, it seemed, I don't, it seemed like a gimmick. And I, it's being used now as a selling point. It's being used now as a point, much like the, oh, you can use our pans with soap. Like, well, now, hey, you can, you have a mirror finish on this and nothing's going to stick to it because, you know, you're going to get the whole thing hot. Well, now you're now also not going to get any oil to fall into those spots. So potentially you could be creating, you know, more of an issue now that you've, that right. you've sanded it down. Now, one one of the um, one of the things that new manufacturers use that's right. If it's if a skillet's casted properly, it'll be smooth. It'll start out its journey in life being nice and smooth and ready to go. But microscopically, it'll be ready and open to you know grabbing that oil. Um, back in the day, when they uh, made skillets, what they how they would bring down the high spots on their castings. Uh, they would put it in a, what was called a vertical turret lathe. It was almost like a lathe, but it's 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 a uh, it's vertical, and they would strap the skillet in. You know, they would break. They would you know bracket it in, and they would spin the skillet almost how like a record player would. And picture like how the record needle goes across a record. That would be a bit that would smooth out the cast iron. And that's not that's not polishing it. It's doing it at a slow RPM, usually around 29 to 50 RPMs, which is not very fast at all. And it would bring down the high spots so that you started with an even cooking surface. And there is a big difference, in my, in my opinion, there's a big difference between polished and straight. You know what I mean? If you straighten out a surface, it doesn't have to be polished. It can just be have the high spots brought down. Does that make, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. At that point. Cool. Yeah. It's not going to a polish. You're using essentially like a, well, shoot, but yeah, you said like low RPMs and it's, it's knocking down, it's cutting, it's not polishing. So it's cutting right. down those high spots at a low RPM, much like, yeah, an old school or even just a, a you know, a belt, a belt saw that you would right. use uh, in a metal shop where that's going to, it's going to slowly cut through. It doesn't want to go too fast because of the heat transfer and you're, you know, you're going to mess up that blade, but slowly cutting through with a harder steel is going to be able to get through that same sort of way with what you're talking through in that process. Absolutely. And um, being a machinist and working in a welding shop for as long as I have, um, you get a really good understanding how they do things. Now, I mentioned the word manual machinist, meaning I don't use any digital readout. I don't use any digitized medium to do this work. Um, one of the machines I have a lot of experience with, uh, the newest patent on that machine is 1914. And the earliest is, you know, 1890. So this is the one of the exact, exact to a T machines that Griswold, Wagner, Erie, Wapak would use um, to do that surface grading, like I'm talking about, uh, the vertical turret lathe. So to have that background and the knowledge of metal in my, you know, that feather in my cap, so to speak, kind of does allow me to, uh, you know, give this information, not really as an opinion based. It's kind of kind of like science, you know, like there's evidence and there's a reason behind what I'm saying. It's not an opinion that a polished piece of metal will not deposit oils, you know? Absolutely. Man, working with such machinery too, and just being 
in the metal and how like the high day of cast iron was in cast iron manufacturing was right there at the turn of the night of, of the 18th century there right down you know 1890s into to 1901 yeah. it's and then you look at just our knowledge of stuff now like you think we would be you think it would be better like hey we're we're into the future like we're we're thinking better but the product that we had to put forward, the thing that's making us better, we thought was going to be Teflon, and here it is all flaking uh-huh. off and and just you know a mess. And here we're we're resorting back. We're saying, you know what, we done screwed up. We got to go back to the, the early 1900 to find what actually we should be using. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a, a proper depiction of you know the capitalist society that are are. Our nations become let's let's make the most we can as fast as we can and, you know, get as much money as we can for them. And back in the day, people were like, let's make this right. Let's make it to last forever. Um, And nothing these days, you know, cookware as well. Nothing is really made to last nowadays. It's all made to be replaced. It's not meant to be repaired. And it's just such a wide gap between what they made in the 1890s versus what they're making today. And like I said, there are some brands that are doing it right and doing it the way that they used to um, that I like. And I, I, uh, you know, want to do more work with them, you know, showing how they do what they're doing uh, that relates to the old processes. But, um, you know, that that's something for down the road to think about. But I think the background in metal that I have has really um, shown its light with a, a lot of the chefs and, and people that I've done work with over the years, uh, whereas the quality of my product comes through, you know. So there is a company that I am going to refer to as uh, Sasquatch. Okay. It uh, it started its its venture in one corner of food refrigeration. Or okay. at least trying to keep things cold, and it has now ventured into creating a a cast iron pan. It is, I believe, it is twelve inches. Yep, I know exactly what it is. I saw it before it came out. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about, and I'll tell you what that thing's worth every penny. You know why? Because it's made by one of the companies, one of the only companies in the, in America right now that's making cast iron the right way. Good, good. Because and I'm not going to want to hear more about it. Yeah. I, I am. A, I'm a Sasquatch affiliate and I'm not being paid to say that. Okay. But I stood behind that company far before I was ever involved with Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> good. Cause here's the thing. I, um, I'm, I'm being, I'm being coy with the name because I, I've used their, their coolers before they're, they're wonderful. And I, it, maybe it was the sticker shock. And again, it's, it's probably me too. Whenever, whenever something pops up, it's either too good to be true or too bad to be true, or just too jarring. Like my, my initial knee jerk reaction is to uh. avoid it or, you know, like, okay, there's, there's something more here that I'm looking at, but right. It came with a price tag of of four hundred dollars for one piece of uh, of skillet, and so it, I mean the Midwest penny pinch the uh, penny pincher myself like instantly like oh no no we don't walk away from it. Um, but the process that you're going, you're saying that that pan 
has been put together. This is a that is a pan that is going to essentially outlive the purchaser. It's made of that high quality, and it's gonna it's gonna perform when used correctly. The one as one of the best pans you could get. Right, it is made exactly the way that cast iron should be made, and yeah, the sticker shock is there, like you're talking about. But half the people that you know complained of the price still bought it and then retracted saying, oh, yeah, that's too much money. I mean, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. You know what I mean? That's my big thing, too. Right. Um, just because, you you know, just because you can't afford it doesn't mean you have to trash the company or the people that are buying it or the fact that you think it's expensive. Just, you know, don't buy it. Maseratis are also expensive, too, but you don't see people. Pick it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, and I I don't know what I don't know. And what I do know is, yeah, I got my, I got my Lodge 10 inch and, you know, if that's a comparable to one of the big three being, you know, Ford or Chevy, like great, it's, it's serving my purpose. It's, it's doing well. I think I'm getting a great quality out of it. The fact that I've had it for now five years and yeah, it's, I've haven't needed to re up on a, on a 10 inch skillet. It still performs for me. Great. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, to say the point, like, yeah, to upscale to something that is high performance to something that's made with supreme quality, like, yeah, you're gonna, you're going to pay for that. So I, I can nod my cap to that. Right. Yeah, it's it's it all it all just comes down to like how into it you are. You know what I mean? It it comes down to. Um, you know, do you want to buy something once? I mean, if you look at it, yeah, I think the price tag was what around 400. Yeah. So if you look at it, 400 bucks, you buy it once you take care of it you treat it right. You never have to buy it again. The average consumer gets a new, new complete cook, uh, cookware set every seven to 10 years. The average price on your cookware sets around five to $700. So in the course of your life, you're going to spend 10 grand on cooking equipment, or you could buy a couple hundred dollar skillets and have them for the rest of your life. That is, that's a great way to look at it. It's, like, it's that buy once, cry once scenario. Right. Exactly. I, I get, uh, you know, I buy all my tools through snap on and people trash me at work. There's a couple guys at work that don't believe in snap on that tell me I'm nuts. But my dad was a tractor mechanic growing up and he explained it to me like this. You buy this wrench, say when you're 18 years old, you buy the wrench. Yeah. The wrench, the wrench is a hundred dollars you know, when all the other wrenches are $50, but that hundred dollar wrench is the only one you ever have to buy because if it breaks, it got, a, it's got a warranty and it's made so well that you don't have to worry about it breaking. If it wears down over time and, and above all things, the snap on guy actually comes to you. It's like an ice cream truck, but with tools, <laughs> but absolutely. <laughs> I find that if you buy a quality product and you take care of it, the price kind of doesn't really factor into it very much unless you know you're up against the wall money wise or something like that but you save up you buy the good stuff you don't buy crap 20 times and it ends up you know floating around in the ocean somewhere well cast iron wouldn't float around the ocean but <laughs> you know what i mean it's out there with, with with what hula hoops glow sticks your old roller blades you know whatever's out in the ocean yeah exactly <laughs> shoot man there's a whole there's a whole episode right there talking about just plastics in general like oof. oh yeah um, where was I going to go on this tangent? Oh, that's where I wanted to go to. So you've, you've talked about some of the modern stuff that's being put together, uh, extremely well. Um, 
but at the same time, like you've got some of those older pieces uh, hanging up in your own collection, and right. then highly so- looking after these these the rarities. What has been one of, and I'm going to allude to, I'm, I'm going to definitely bring up one of your pieces that that you've recently uh, restored. But what has been what has been one of the rarities that you have found that has just kind of like blown your mind that you have really like wow like this is a great piece here this is a one of a kind i've i've restored a couple 13s griswold 13s go for big money um and that is that the, the 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 size of it is that a 13 inch or is that a model no so the number on the skillet corresponds with the um, size hole of the wood stoves that people used to use. So like a Griswold eight is a 10 and three quarter skillet. Um, you know, a number seven is like 10 and a quarter, um, a 13. I'm not, I'm, I'm not positive of the actual dimensions. They're so rare. You don't really deal with them, but once or twice in your career, but um, I've restored them for people. I've, I've handled a few of them. And, um, I've seen some twos. I've done some work with Griswold twos before. Um, Wapak is, is a, uh, manufacturer of skillets, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s that I really like. And I've seen a few of the Indian head medallion skillets come around. Oh, wow. Um, those are cool. They're, they're really cool. And like I said, I, I, there's no need for me to have a $500 skillet in my collection. So I restore them, send them out. Gotcha. You know. Um, again, Folks that are surfing around on on the interwebs there, going through social media, you come across cast iron underscore Kyle. And one of the adventures that that I saw you put together is you found this uh it was a, a bull or a steer hibachi. Yeah. That thing is so cool. And just to describe it to folks, so it looks like a two-piece uh that's been either strapped together uh with hardware or or if it's been um bolted together or even just got got hooks onto it holding together but it's a it's a bull or a a big cow but the top of it is flat and if you think of like uh an older sportsman's uh grill from lodge where you could basically you had the coal bed there with a grate and then you also had your cooking plate up on top that was kind of one of the first things that i saw it compared to but it's just this really neat piece of art when you you were restoring that, have you got a chance to dig into the history of that piece? Like, what have you found out about it? So I found out that it's either a Cracker Barrel piece or it's a really vintage, um, uh, really vintage one-off. Uh, it's really, it's a really cool, unique piece. And I spent a lot of time restoring it. Um, I actually made a little uh, extra electrolysis tank just for the three individual pieces. So it has the top part that comes off almost like a grill grate. And then it has a plate in the bottom where it holds the coals off of the bottom of the cow. And it has holes in the bottom for the air to circulate. And, you know, the cow itself obviously is, is a piece too. Um, but I'm, you're talking hours and hours of restoration on this thing. And I brought it to Maine on vacation and cooked an elk steak on it. Um, and yeah, it got a lot of views. It got a, one of the most successful reels I've ever made. I think it hit like 2.5 million views or something like that, which was pretty cool. Um, 
And it was one of the reels with the least amount of effort too. It kind of pissed me off. I was like, damn, you know, I, did, I did this. I posted this, this video. Like I couldn't believe it. I put it on my, you know, my John Boo's block on the countertop. I was like, look at this thing, check this thing out. And I just like talked about what it was, lifted up the grate, put it back down. And then, you know, here we are a month later, the things, you know, hit 2.5 million views. You know, that the number that that's wild about that is it's that uh, 167,000 people, liked it and 41,000 41.8 thousand people liked it enough to share it that's crazy to me those yeah. numbers i still listen i'm not saying those numbers in a braggadocious manner at all i'm saying it in a like what the hell kind of manner like it blew my mind that that many people liked it but you know what if i look at it and i if, if you know from looking at it you know the real again it was a really cool restoration piece a really cool before and after and if you look if you look at that reel the original reel there's so many people there that trash my eyebrows and it's crap <laughs> that's people the think, tip they get out of it they don't take anything else but they're uh, like dude what's going on then caterpillars <laughs> yeah but dude, it cracks me up so much that people think that that is like like dude you see what i'm doing here i'm restoring iron pieces of history you think talking about my eyebrows is gonna get through to me man you're on the wrong page brother oh you done missed man strike one you missed yeah go, go back to your go back to your obscurity go buy a bag of doritos stupid yeah. <laughs> well man i feel like we've just gotten to the tip of this iceberg kyle like there's just so many things i, I want to get into um but man i tell you what one of my big passions is using that cast iron i mean shoot if i it's one of those things like if i had a sign maybe not assigned to baseball uh maybe i'm i'm like the kid from sandlot though like i want things to be used i don't want things to sit on a shelf and not be used so like a signed baseball i, I want to get it down and i want to throw it and just because a celebrity you know signs my baseball cap doesn't mean like I'm not going to wear that baseball cap. It, now I get to show off that Sharpie mark to other people to be like, hey, look who signed my cap. Like, I, I want to use it. I want to wear it. And I'm the same way with my cast iron. Like, I don't want to let it sit on a shelf. Uh, even, if it's, even if it's expensive, even if it's cheap, I, I want it to get used. So that's where I kind of want to come here to the crescendo of our show is I'm going to give you a two-dish breakdown. And I'm kind of hit, hitting you off here. Uh, quick, because uh, I didn't prep you on anything uh, as far as cooking related, but but Kyle, I mean, we're we're dealing with pans here. We're we're in the kitchen. We're ready to put something together. Um, you were describing to me your dinner tonight. You had um, an Asian style pancake. You were working with. You had some dumplings, yep. and you even had uh, you know a, a piece of it was cod or uh, flounder. flounder flounder. You yep. had. Um, go through a little bit of that. How did you, and I assume you used cast iron for this. How do you go through using, you know, cast iron in a way where you can make a pancake and a dumpling, something that you're going to sear super hard, but at the same time, you need to be so delicate with those dumplings. Like, it just sounds like, man, you know, your way around that skillet. How did you make that dinner tonight? Well, what I do, I'm an I'm I'm opportunistic when I know I have a gap of time, and I, I kind of blocked out some time prior to this podcast so that I could, um, you know, play around in the kitchen a little bit. So, 
Um, and I don't, I don't like to do normal dinners. <laughs> You're not going to find, you know, peanut butter and jelly doesn't really find its way around my kitchen too often for dinner. But um, yeah, I did the scallion pancakes in uh, number eight, uh, Wapak skillet with a little bit of a uh, little bit of oil, a little bit of lard, and I crisped it up, cut it into little pieces, like you know, little six inch or a six little like mini slices, almost like a pizza. And then um, in another pan, I boil some water and I put my bamboo steamer in there, throw some dumplings together, and then in another pan, I do the uh, I do the flounder. I, I cook the flounder in the oven a little bit, and then I crisp it up in the pan, give everything that nice crunch to it. Um, the dumplings are nice and soft, though. I don't really sear them. They're more like soup dumplings. If you burn them, the soup can run out of them. Um, but I do have a, a, a couple go-to dishes um, other than the Asian stuff uh, that I really love to make in cast iron. And one of those things is a uh, duck breast. I'm a big fan of the crispy craziness you can get on a duck breast if you if you do it correctly absolutely absolutely that's going to be our number two here we're going to get all into that duck breast guys are going to be hitting the water here very soon i think actually um here in september we've opened up with uh canada geese and i think um i think i think dunks are are duck are coming up here soon um when you're when you're doing a duck breast, it, am I still starting with that cast iron cold like I would on a thinner pan? Or is this one where I want to have some heat already built up in the pan? Uh, whenever you're cooking with cast iron, never start cold ever with anything. Even if you're cooking Cheerios, man, don't ever. You don't, you <laughs> don't want, Cheerios. <laughs> you don't want that skillet cold at all. No cold skillet. Good. Okay. Never. So no. take me through that process then. I got a hot pan then. All right, so you get your pan nice and hot. You, you can put the oil in cold if you want, so that way you don't shock the oil when you throw it in when the pan's searing hot and it bubbles up crazy. You don't want to do that. You can add the oil in cold if you want. Okay. Um, but what you want to do is you want to prep the skin of the duck breast. You want to kind of like serrate it nicely, like put little slits in it on either side so that it crisps up nice and evenly. Almost not all like the way I, through, though. You're just you're just nipping the, the surface. Through. Okay. Yeah. Um you know, because duck duck breast is a little bit more meatier than your common poultry. I mean, it, it's it's a it's it's almost like a red meat. You have to treat it like, um, but you have to retain some of the fat under the skin too. So that's why, like, it, that's why I mentioned if you do it right, meaning you know it's going to take you a few times. The first time I did a duck breast, it was a disaster. I needed a bath. I put the oil in too wrong. Like I was just, it was a mess. Uh, but you want to get the, the 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 skin nice and crispy. Um, you'll, you could do it the night before, uh, and cut it and allow that, that fat to breathe and to dry out a touch, um, which would, which will allow it to crisp up. Um, you know, you could put it on a baking sheet in your fridge overnight and, uh, that, that'll allow the moisture, uh, to draw out of some of the fat. Yeah. And, uh, the less moisture, the crispier you'll get. Uh, you won't necessarily lose any moisture from the meat itself. Um, you know, and you want that fat to render off to cook the rest of the meat too. Um, it's like pork belly. It's, it's not easy to do it good. You know what I mean? It's not easy. It's not an easy thing to cook. It's easy. It's easy to cook pork belly, but it's very hard to cook pork belly. Right. Does that make sense? I'm throwing stuff at the wall here. Yeah. No. And I, (laughs) I think too, like as far as takeaways too, like that's something we've used for, 
that I use for my venison or that I use for shoot any steak that I'm I'm getting out. If I want a sear, if I want to get color and I want to get that crispy, and especially on something that doesn't have fat, uh, like my like my venison, I'm gonna do like that that trip overnight in the refrigerator or even like I get you know thawed out overnight and then I'm getting ready to go to work I'm gonna open up that package I'm gonna take those those pieces of venison I'm gonna hit it with a little bit of salt but I'm gonna leave them exposed in that uh, refrigerator because it's gonna wick that moisture off the surface and if I've got a dry piece like you said like once I've got that skillet hot and I put that down there's no moisture that's going to bubble to keep it gray there's no boil action action going on there we're going straight to my yard at that point we're going to be browning and i think that's what's happening with uh that that duck like you're talking about you got that dry skin it's immediately going to brown it's immediately going to render that fat as opposed to have to boil off any of that moisture that's already sitting there right and what you want to do um you want to cook you don't want to go above 130 at all like if you're near 130 you know, stop at 130, pull it off, let it rest. Um, always do the fat size first. Get that nice crunch. Get that nice Maillard effect that you want. Get that fat nice and rendered. Then flip it. You can crank the heat up a little bit more when you flip it just so that it cooks that meat right. Um, locks in that flavor. Um, have you ever had ostrich, by the way? I was going to ask you that. Uh, no. I've had plenty of big turkeys. Uh, grew up on a turkey farm, so I've had a lot of big turkeys. I have not had ostrich. I made it for the first time last weekend. I, I uh, collabed with a buddy of mine who does uh, beer pairings. His name is uh, Paired Pints on Instagram. Great guy, good friend, like just that that solid dude that you could bounce anything off of, and you know he's going to give you a good answer that's best for for you. You know, like that that helpful person in your life. And I was like, dude, let's get together and do some ostrich and waffles. Take your traditional chicken and waffle recipe, but let's do the ostrich uh, schnitzel style. Yeah. Uh, paired it with some blueberry hot sauce and then we paired it with a blueberry cobbler IPA like it was it was a dream this menu and it hasn't come out yet so we'll have to get together on when this podcast is going to come out so we can make sure that the recipe comes out (laughs) (laughs) yes you bet a little foreshadowing here we'll make sure to put a link or something over to that um the reason Shoot. I bring it up, the ring, the reason I bring up the ostrich is because the ostrich meat was like blood red, like it it cooked like a steak, and it was so much. I wanted to treat it like a fillet so much that it was like it was like reprogramming my inner computer how to cook this thing. Yeah, and I don't want people to be afraid of cooking duck. I've had a lot of friends, you know, I have friends that claim to be foodies. When I say, hey, let's do some duck, they're like, nah, no, duck's weird, you know. And, and then I, I'm like, fine, more for me. Last time I smoked a duck breast, I took half of it and sliced it up, and I made a um, a duck a la ranch uh, flatbread pizza with brie, and I smoked it on my Traeger. I was happy to have that bad boy to myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody to share at that point. Shoot. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. So f- flavor profile of an ostrich. What what are we looking at? Is it is it poultry forward, or is it definitely got – it's got some funk to it. It's got, it had no funk to it. It tasted like, almost like a sirloin. How sirloin's not fatty, but it's also not chewy. Yeah. Um, you know, a properly done sirloin cooks pretty good. It wasn't soft as a fillet, but it wasn't hard as London broil. Um, 
definitely definitely knew it wasn't beef, but you would be really hard pressed to have a blind taste test with it and tell somebody that it was poultry. I'm not even sure if ostrich would you consider that that would be considered poultry, correct? Um I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say yeah, just cuz it's yeah, part of our, too, yeah. our feathered yeah. friends. It's a land bird. I mean, it is upland, but man, <laughs> it definitely hey, man, blows. That's how, dude, that's how the politicians do it. They look at each other, and go, "Hey, you thinking what I'm thinking?" Yeah, right, let's tell them that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So yes, yeah. ostrich is in the poultry family. I I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some chefs, some of the chefs I've collaborated with, and you know, talked to on the back end and done projects with. I've seen one or two of them do ostrich before, and you know, it was always something I wanted to take a stab at. Did any of them do the drumstick? Like, just pull no. out the two-foot drumstick and be like, all right, snack down on that. <laughs> that's that's a really good idea. Uh, no, I have not seen that. But um, there's a chef I really like um, from Australia. His name is uh, Andy, Andy Herndon. His name is Andy Cooks on Instagram. I could see him doing that. Like, I don't know why, but I could just picture him doing it. Like, he does uh, really fun stuff like that. Uh, cool guy. I, I should propose that to him. Maybe, maybe if he wants to make his way to the states, we could do that together. We'll smoke one. <laughs> yes, that would be epic. I'm a shank guy. I love shanks. Oh, whether God, it's yeah. whether it's beef, whether it's venny, whether it, I mean, shoot, whether it's off poultry. Like, give me the drumstick. That that dark Ap- meat sinew doesn't turn me off. Like, I I'm eating an animal. I know what I'm getting into, and the yes. fact that that's the hardest worked muscle also provides like there's a flavor profile that you get in something that's been low smoke. There's a velvetiness once it falls apart, but even to sit there and just chew on something and like, Oh, you got a little bit of like tendon in your tooth. Like, I don't care, man. I knew what I'm getting myself into. So that right. would just be a righteous thing to see. Like, yeah, a good 18 inch long <laughs> drumstick would be. Oh sweet. my God. It'd be great. Dude. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of, you know, get to know your butcher. Uh, if you, if you, you know, don't have the luxury of having a local butcher shop, even at the grocery store, get to know the guy, talk to him. And every once in a while, I'll take a cut of meat. Like I'll take a, um, you know, short ribs and say, Hey, can you just, can you pull the bones off like of this? Can you butcher it this way? Can you, you know, that they'll cut stuff up for you. If you want to make a good stew, get a lamb shank and have them slice it up for you. Oh my God. I'm all about that, dude. (laughs) <laughs> that relationships are huge relationships are huge oh god yeah well kyle this has just been an epic hour and i don't want to keep you too late i mean we got to keep on doing the rest of our lives here even though we could sit here and talk all night but um where can my folks jump in on on your action where can we find out more about you when can we find about the products you're pushing uh that you've really come alongside with and the people that you associate with where where can we follow along So, I mean, everything I do is really uh, concentrated into my Instagram page. I've tried the TikTok thing, didn't like it. Um, Tried the Facebook thing, too many political arguments. I'm not for that. Um, And I try to keep everything on Instagram. Um, I have a link tree with everything in it, like the links to Podcast Iron, the links to Full Slice Podcast, the podcast I do with my brother and my two friends. uh, if, if you want to see everything that I'm doing and what my current projects are, uh, you could really sum that up by my bio and Instagram. Um, if you want to learn a little bit more about, you know, my background, you can um, 
go on YouTube and watch. I did an episode with Brad Leone for his new show, Local Legends. And we really dive deep into uh, my past and, and why this came to be. And I think that anybody that's new to myself and the world of cast iron should start there with why this is important. Um, and also, if you want, I did an article about carbon steel stuff with Food 52. If you want to look that up, that was a fun article. Um, but yeah, everything really is on my Instagram page or uh, castironkyle.com. Uh, and, and that's that's mostly it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kyle, go ahead and hold on for just a second. I'm going to let our, our listeners on out. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this this episode and this conversation because yeah we've we've talked cast iron before and we've talked a little bit about seasoning and you know kind of like some of the basics do's and don'ts uh like not using soap (laughs) but at the same time like we got to go a little bit deeper here and ask some some deep questions of stuff that we're being bombarded with is is really pricey cast iron legit and we're finding out that that there there's a reason why it's so expensive uh but at the same time we're finding people trying to manipulate and change the way cast iron's being used and processed and how it's presented and it doesn't feel right and there's reasons why it shouldn't feel right uh the way things should be done is is looking back into the past and not necessarily looking forward when it comes to food and when it comes to using cast iron but folks whether it's going to be getting you a pricey piece of cast iron or if you're going to end up end up trying to bring one to life and get it in the oven and start it out make sure that you're keeping that thing all seasoned up and the knife that you're going to process the rest of your stuff with is very sharp